Uh, reading today is from 1 John 2, uh, verse 12 through 17. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride in possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. The word of the Lord. This morning, I want to uh, begin just by simply reading, I think, what is the most powerful part of this passage. And I want for you to hear it just the same as if God was in this room saying it to you because it lacks no less power being written in his word. It says this, do not love the world. Do not love the world or the things of the world. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Our world, beloved, our our nation loves abortion. I know that that's a very stark way of uh, starting the sermon this morning. I know that it is uncouth. I know that it is not politically correct for a man to be talking about abortion, to be talking about it publicly, to be talking about it with any sense of care or authority. But here I read God's word, do not love the world or the things of the world. And the truth must stand in our minds that our world, our nation loves abortion. We, we need not very many examples of this to know that they do, to know that the world does. We can look uh, internationally at, uh, at nations all over the world, but China in particular, which uh, from 1980 until 2016 had a one-child policy that partnered together with the hearts of man preferred boy children over women children, and the best estimates that we have is that in China, right now today, there are 30 to 60 million less women than there ought to be. They're called the missing girls. They loved something more than they loved obedience to the one God, the provider of life. But here, not just internationally, but nationally, in the last 50 years since Roe, there have been 60 million abortions, 60 million souls silenced and denied life here in this country. And we hear 
uh, numbers like that, and it just kind of goes into this other category. But to make it real this morning, for us to know what we have missed out on as a nation, that would be as though the 900,000 people in Fort Worth partnered with the 950,000 people in Austin that partnered together with the people of Dallas at 2 million and then partnered together with, or sorry, 1.3 million and then partnered together with 2 million people from Houston. And then when you put all of those people together, needed 12 times that number of people to make up the people that we've lost, the persons that we have lost It is not a potential human life. It is human life with potential. From the moment of conception, that little fertilized egg, that zygote, had all of the DNA. It had all of the things to make up a unique person. It was a person. From that very moment, it had all of the building blocks. Yes, undifferentiated cells multiplying very rapidly, but very soon we now know because of science and sonograms that we get to see little buds for arms. We get to see and hear little heartbeats. We actually get to see God's amazing creation, the things that he knows, the things that used to be unknown to us because we didn't have the science. We now see the wondrous works of God in utero, and we know that there is someone unique there created. And you might ask me, how do you know that the world or our nation loves it? Maybe it's just, it's something other. It's not love. They don't love. Well, if that were true, it wouldn't have started out in the 70s being talked about as a necessary evil. It wouldn't have morphed into in the 90s being talked about as safe and legal and rare to being more recently talked about as shouting, shout your abortion. And then it wouldn't have morphed even more to the celebration of it on stages like the Oscars where we have a a female actress who actually credits her abortion with her ability to stand on a stage and reach out for her dreams. It is a celebration. What it has become is a sacrament of modern infant sacrifice to the idols that we have. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that as we move through what the text calls love of the world. But what we, beloved, you today, don't, don't let this pass by you. What we have lived through over the last decades is a modern day silent but de facto holocaust that disproportionately aimed its scepter at the poor and persons of color. That's what we have lived through. It's a racist institution. It's a misogynistic institution. It is an institution that loves violence and hates life. And we mean to say so this morning. We have poured words like choice as an acid atop the institution of personhood and parenthood just to see them disintegrated in our midst. Our nation has sinned. We have stood amidst approving of sin, and this sin was so quantifiably terrible and wicked that it is only rivaled by slavery as our national sin. It's only even quantifiably in terms of numbers. Uh, it even approaches something uh, that, like it is, is slavery. But you know what I think is, is that it was motivated by the same dehumanizing tendency in people. And I want this morning to actually praise God 
for his work in overturning Roe. And, and it's not the end of this story. I know, uh, I know that this only means that there will be some states that will have and expand the availability of abortion, uh, abortion, and there will be others that put limitations in place, and there will be companies, as we've seen this week, that have provided funds for their employees to be able to travel to go and have abortions in states that have less limitations on it. I know that the work is not done, but I do at this moment want to praise God for the work that he has done, not that some justices did, not that even necessarily that the church did or the pro-life advocates did, but that he alone is responsible for. I heard uh, several of you say this week that it was surprising to you. Many of us thought that we would never see a nation without a federal law allowing for abortion. We never thought that that would come about. We certainly didn't suspect that it would come about in the way that it did. But here today, we need to recognize that law, that jurisprudence as number one, legal garbage, morally depraved. And we've got to understand its overturning as something of a power swing and a good one, maybe finally. That the overturning of Roe returned power to people to actually have a vote. You may not have thought about this, but you would have to be 67 years old, 67 years old, to have ever voted with any kind of consequence in your state for there not to be any kind of limitation or for there to be any kind of limitation on abortion. That means that most of us in this room have never really had a substantive voice in the most morally imperative thing of our time. That's sobering. And so I do celebrate that here we will actually be able to have a say in it. We will be able to think about it. We will be able to have discussions about it and actually have some sort of outlet for there to be any kind of movement at all. And I just want to praise God for it. Because when I stand and look at the consequences of it, when I contemplate the, uh, the, the ravaging that has been done here, I must think in very clear terms that if not for abortion, our country would have more moral credence and character. We would have a different complexion. We would be a more diverse society. We would be more beautiful, as it were. We would have valued human life more. We would have made different decisions as a country. We would be more productive. We would have not just 60 million, but we would have 60 million more souls back that had babies that had babies. We would be more productive as a society. In an expanding global reach, we would be more secure. We would have more people. When we think about uh, exterior threats you know, to freedom here in the United States, we can think of and name countries that have far more people, and people are powerful, we would be more secure as a country. So when I go back and hear all of this, do not love the world or the things of the world. I'm not trying to get us off track. I'm not just trying to add an appendage to a sermon. I am no Christian nationalist. I am no advocate or activist that is standing here in this pulpit for you. I just simply look at the word and hear it say, do not love the world or the things that the world loves. Why? Because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him, and that is a spiritual matter. That is a matter of a sermon, that is a matter of preaching, that is a matter of a pastor, and I care very deeply about it. 
And listen, I want you to know that if you disagree, if you disagree with that, if you disagree with our stance as a church, we love you. We want you to stay here. We want you to open your ears. We want you to be receptive to the things of God's word because nothing matters more than God sitting on his throne, him being able to and authoritatively give and take away life for him to be the one that is sovereign and in charge and for us to be obedient, obedient, obedient to him and to celebrate the things that he celebrates, and to call evil and wicked the things that he calls wicked and evil. And for those of you who may disagree with that, I want you to know we can still be friends. We can have that discussion, but I mean to say what Scripture has always said. I mean to value the things that Scripture has always valued. I mean for City Church to be a place and a people that is not just warriors, but winsome about this. I think we have an amazing opportunity as a church here in this city, not just to know truth, but to speak it as well. And so if you'll give me some grace, if you'll give me some license in some sense to talk about these very difficult, these very hard things for us to have a lot of sobriety and a lot of celebration this morning, for us to be soberly celebrating this morning the work that God has done, I would ask you that you would just allow me that grace. Because what I see in this text is that Christians cannot love the world or worldly things or, verse 17, here's why it's a matter of life and death, and I, I choose those words very carefully. It's because if we do not, we will die. Verse 17 says we will pass away. We'll pass away like the world. And so here's what I think is the essence of this message this morning. Here's what I think that we get out of it. There are essentially two sections here that bring us a great deal of assurance and a great and grievous warning. But what I think that we learn in the midst of all of it is that faithful, forgiven fighters abide forever. Faithful, forgiven fighters abide forever. So if you're thinking, man, Chris seems more feisty this morning. It's because because we see fighting and overcoming here in the text, faithful, forgiven fighters abide forever. But we've got to know why in the world we're approaching it this way. If you've been with us through the context that we are in, we've got to take a look at verses 12 through 14 and be a little confused. It's like, this seems to come out of nowhere. But what we need to do is remember where we have been in 1 John. And I don't mind telling you that I've loved it. I want for us to remember that the last chapter and a half has given us an onslaught of very hard distinctions, a lot of if-then statements. If we walk, if we say, whoever says, whoever hates, then the truth is not in. He is a liar. The word is not in him. So we get a lot of these really stark sayings. We get almost like this litmus test for whether or not you are a believer. And if we can be honest, it's been a little difficult. It's been a little hard. John has had some very confrontational words for us. So the earnest believer could be forgiven for having a little bit of anxiety, a little bit of doubt, lacking a little bit of assurance. These are so stark and so definite that it would be easy for us to try to squirm out, for us to find a way out of some of the very defined things that John has said to us. But what we need to do is to remember John's authority to say them. These, these are not things that he just thought was a good idea. This was God's word by the way of the Spirit indwelling John the Apostle, receiving the commission from Jesus to then love and lead out in the church. 
man, it's, it's got a lot of authority. It's got something to say to you here this morning. And here, John wants to give true believers assurance, confidence, and determination. So that's the, that's the reason for the switch in tones. That's the reason why he's going to spend a brief moment on something that is assuring. And he's wanting to give us confidence and determination because what he wants is to make a warrior out of you. I'll show you in the text. For verse uh, 12 through 14, we're going to learn about the kind of assurance that he wants for us. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven. Might be forgiven, maybe forgiven, it kind of is forgiven, are forgiven. Why? For his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I'm writing to you, children, because you know the Father. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who was from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you are strong. The word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So he continues on in this theme of telling us why he is writing. Through the first chapter and a half and through now the second full chapter, we're going to see that he is constantly telling us specifically, explicitly, why he is writing to us. So there's no need for confusion. There's a lot of times where when you're doing a Bible study, you're like, what is the author trying to tell me? And John is just going, I'm writing you. This is why I'm writing you. He's got a lot of reasons why he's writing us. But here, what he wants most for us is tender assurance with his audience. And we need to pay attention to his structure. I'm writing you. I'm writing you. I'm writing you. I write you. I write you. I write you. There's almost just this emphasis that he's putting on it because what he's doing is writing a song. And it's a certain kind of song. It's an ode. He's writing an ode to them. He's telling them something, and he's got a structure to it. He wants for us to know that he's actually kind of singing to us. And he's singing to children and to young men and to fathers. And lest any of us goes, well, those are all masculine things or primarily masculine things. We need to remember that that's not so. He's been referring all along to us as children. And so we can sit here and try to uh, agree with different theories of why he's doing this. We can uh, think through it and say, oh, it's literal. He's talking to children and then he's talking to young men and then he's talking to fathers. He's really only focused on men. Or you can read it in the context of 1 John and see that what he's doing is he's talking to spiritual types. I believe that he's already referred to the readers, to those people that are in uh, Asia Minor as those who are reading this aloud in their gatherings, just like we are today, as children. And he might be referring to the stages of Christian growth. Little children may mean new believers, people that are just kind of coming into faith. Young men may refer to those who are maturing in their belief. And fathers may be referring to those who have been maturing in their belief for a long time. They've come to some sort of maturity in the faith, but any way you cut it, he's talking to believers. He's talking to the church in Asia Minor, and he's encouraging them. And what we'll see is, is that his original hearers are there in those churches in Asia Minor, but they are also us. First, the original hearers, he is writing to the children and fathers who know the father who was from the beginning. He's writing to the children and fathers because they know the father who was from the beginning. What we get is that they are faith, 
They have faith in a forever father. He's writing to those people who are believers. We need to know that he's not writing to a general audience. There are plenty of books in scripture that are written to a city and it includes non-believers or they're writing specifically to Jews or specifically to Gentiles or a combination of both in the early church. And what he's saying is, I'm writing to you children who have faith in the everlasting father, the forever father. But not just to them, he's writing to the children of faith whose sins are forgiven for his name's sake. So it's not just those who have faith, it's those who by faith now actually have uh, given glory to this father by way of forgiveness. They are forgiven for the glory of the Father. So they have faith, and by faith they are saved, they are forgiven, and by their forgiveness they are actually giving glory to God for his namesake, for the fame of Jesus Christ, for the glory of God the Father, and the power of the Holy Spirit. And he is writing finally to the strong young men who abide in the word. God's word abides in them and who have overcome the evil one. In fact, that one is so important that it's written twice. You young men, you're strong, and you have overcome the evil one. Now, are they the ones that overcame the evil one? No, they were the ones who were faithful, received forgiveness, and now they have overcome the forgiven one. Jesus hands them the victory. We have victory in Jesus, but they are the ones who have overcome. They are the fighters. So what we see is is that we have faithful, forgiven fighters. But it's not just talking to them, it's also talking to us today. Spirit-filled, faithful believers today. So I want to ask you a few questions. Do you believe in the eternal Father? Do you believe in the eternal Father? I hope when I just ask that question, if you're paying attention, I hope that what happens is, is that it goes into your ears and that something happens in your heart where the Holy Spirit just confirms yes and amen. Do you believe in the faithful forever Father? And I hope that you just say, yes, I believe in him then John is writing to you. Do you believe in him? Do you trust him? John says that you are faithful then, and he's writing to you. If you are faithful in his provision through Jesus Christ, then your sins are forgiven. So I want to ask you something. Not just do you have faith in the everlasting Father, but do you have faith in Jesus Christ, his son that died on a cross for your sins, taking the full payment for your sins on him, dying for those, taking your death, taking that on himself, but then giving you eternal life. Are you forgiven? Do you have faith in Jesus? And what I hope is, is the Holy Spirit is just saying, yes, you do. You have faith in Jesus. What John is saying is, you're forgiven. I'm writing to you. These words are for you. You are faithful. You are forgiven. Oh, what joy that it is that you are forgiven. But God actually shares in the joy. He shares in the honor because you were forgiven for his name's sake. Underline it. Tattoo it somewhere on you. You've been forgiven for his name's sake, for his glory. Praise God. 
So we are faithful, we are forgiven, but then also if you are faithful and forgiven, you are then also strong, you are word abiding, and you are overcoming of the evil one. Did you know that you have victory in Jesus? I know that we've already talked about this, but what a crazy idea this is, is that in Jesus Christ, if you place your faith in him, he gives you the grace of forgiveness, but then expounds on that grace just to give you victory over death, over sin, over Satan. Do you know that as a Christian, being Bible-believing, father-fearing, uh, uh, you know, having just forgiveness in your heart, that you are an overcomer of sin and Satan, that God actually gives you the power over sin. You don't have to return to it anymore. It doesn't have to be that vomit that you go back to like a dog. It doesn't have to be the filthy rags that you pull out and that you claim are yours and that you feel shameful and guilty about. It doesn't have to be that sin that you just cling onto and you say, I can never be forgiven for that. The thing that is in your mind that is just so grievous and so disgusting and so wicked, it may have happened in your teens, it may have happened in your young adult years, it may have happened yesterday. Whatever it is that is telling you, you could not possibly be forgiven for that. I want you to know that you have victory over it. Yes, forgiveness for it, but then Jesus actually gives you power and victory over sin, over Satan. Did you know that you have victory over Satan? Satan cannot come in and take you away, that nobody will be plucked out of God's righteous, holy, omnipotent, omnipresent hand. He can't take you away from him. You have victory over Satan, but not just Satan. You have victory over this world and the things that lies to you. You have victory and you have overcome. You are a fighter, John says. John says you are faithful. He says you are forgiven. He says that you are a fighter. But why does John go so hard in the paint in this first chapter and a half? Why does he go so hard after the doctrines and deeds that we've talked about? It's so that you can have complete clarity at what's at stake, so that you can have complete uh, sight and clarion vision for what it is exactly that God is calling you to. So when he goes through these if-then statements, if you've tripped up on any one of them, if you've just been like, I don't have love like that, like we talked about last week, what you need to know is, is that John is trying to write to you that there might be total and complete clarity, but not condemnation, because now John goes hard after blessed assurance, after the blessed assurance of devotion. And so I want to ask you this morning, not just do you believe, do you agree with John and his doctrine, not just can you put it together to have a few deeds that look pretty righteous. What I want to ask you this morning is, are you devoted to Jesus? Are you devoted? Do you have devotion in your heart? Because if you do have devotion, you are faithful, you are forgiven, and you are a fighter. John is all about this. The gospel that we see in 1 John is that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Not some sins, not part of sin, not uh, all of the sins except for that one that you've got on your mind. It cleanses you from all sin. And you can know that through faith you are forgiven. If we confess our sins, John says, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, to purge us with that hyssop from all unrighteousness. 
that if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins. This is the essence of the gospel. And you can have complete and total assurance that though your work may fail, though it will be tested and tried by time and found wanting, though you have no good work in you that is available that by the mightiest kind of scrutiny isn't done for some type of personal pleasure or personal gain. It does not matter because Jesus's life, his work, his death, his resurrection are perfect and they are finished. You're not saved by the things that you do. When John writes to you about these good works and deeds, when he tries to build in you a Christian ethic, when he does some of the work that we were just doing in terms of not loving the world and talking specifically about something as grievous and wicked as abortion, he's trying to actually form something in you. He's trying to tell you what a Christian ethic looks like. He's trying to tell you that you need to be a good philosopher, but that your philosophy needs to be uh, just embedded in and supported by and underneath Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. You're supposed to be a good ethicist. Did you know it? Be thoughtful about it. You're supposed to have good doctrine. You're supposed to be a good theologian. John's writing to us so that you might have good and faithful and true doctrine. Did you know it? Have you thought, well, I, you know, I believe the Bible. I say that I do. That's good enough. But you never open it. You never study the deep doctrines of the faith. You need to know that John wants your heart. He wants you to be a good theologian. He wants you to have faith. He wants you to believe the right things. But he also wants you to be devoted. He wants you to have love for the right kinds of things. And he wants you to feel assured of it. He wants it to stand almost as a mark in your mind, in your heart, that you might be renewed in your mind, that you might have confidence, that you might have boldness, that you might have assertiveness, that you might have assurance that you are saved. That's what John is doing, and he's sitting here saying to you through Scripture that if you believe in the Father, you are faithful, that if you believe in the Son, you are forgiven, and that if you are devoted to Him, that you are a victor, that you're a fighter that has overcome the evil one. Do you get it? Do you believe it? Do you have assurance of it? If you stand victorious over sin and Satan and death, what war then cannot be won? Why are you so weary and kind of wanting and listless in this life? I want to challenge you this morning. I heard this week that it is hard to feel as though you've been prepared all this time for a fight and you get to this place in your life and either the fight is not in you or you look out on the plane and you don't see a fight in front of you. I don't even get it. I don't understand it. Why? Because there's so much evil and wickedness in this world that we have already overcome and we're just like, well, maybe not today. Maybe not today. Maybe I won't share the gospel today. You're a victor. No one can do anything with your eternal security. You can say the gospel to people with recklessness, and they can't do anything to you. They can't change one day in all of eternity that you're going to be spending with Jesus. Why are you still wanting? Why do you wish that you were a better evangelist? 
Why, why is it that there is this sin in you that you could fight, that you could have victory over, that John is promising you that you can overcome, that we just return time and time again to? That it's just hard to be kind to people that are serving you at restaurants. It's just, you know, this is my time, I'm paying for this, and that person does not deserve the dignity that they want from me, and they definitely don't deserve a tip. Why, why do we do that? Maybe that's not your brand. Maybe there's some other kind of sin that is in you. And what I just want to call you to is fighting for it. The victory's already won. All you have to do is ask God for continued help in fighting and persevering through it. Be a fighter. Why don't we do that? What, what thing can't we take on? You know, uh, here's a personal confession. I really have not, I've, I've studied life. I've studied abortion. I have defined views on these things. I think that they come out of the authoritative word of God. And you know what the truth is? I haven't really done all that much about it. Sawyer and I started the process of an adoption and even had a child play that, that we got matched with, a mom that we got matched with, and that fell through. And then we uh, were pregnant again, and we haven't picked that up again. It, you know, I believe in it. I, I, I believe in adoption. I believe in prayer. There are, is a generation of Christians that have devoted themselves to prayer and to fight the greatest moral turpitude of our time. And this week was a victory. They lived through it and they're celebrating in a way that I'm frankly not celebrating because I wasn't in the fight. Why don't we take on big things? If the war is already won, why don't we pick up a weapon and actually go out there to do something about it? And here's my answer for the last three minutes of this. It's because I think that most of us have been tempted and seduced by the world, and we think that we're missing out on something else and that there's something better than God's king and God's kingdom. That's honestly what I think. Where do I see that? Let's start reading in verse 15 again. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So we have this assurance, but it comes also with a warning, and the warning is similar, but maybe even more fear-producing than some of the other things that we've heard, and that is that we are to war against the world. Don't make friends with it. Don't love it. I've heard more time from Christians talking about how we, we don't need to stand opposed to culture. We need to, you know, get in there and, you know, create things that are beautiful in the midst of it. That's true, but are you just creating a way for you to continue watching the smut that you normally do? Are you continuing to just find a way to talk the way that you normally wanted to? Like, are we just making excuses for to, uh, not to live in the world, but to live of the world rather than living in the world, but not of the world? Is that what we're doing? I think it probably is. This says... If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. What does it mean to love the world? Well, well, first, what I don't think that it means. I don't think that it means that we don't have compassion, we don't have desire, we're not, uh, we're not actually confronting the world for the desire of redemption. That's what God does. For God so loved the world. How much? How much did he love it? He loved it, he gave everything for it. 
So he obviously loved the world. So we're not to not love the world with uh, pity and compassion and desire for redemption. We're not supposed to do that. We're not supposed to live outside of the world. We're not supposed to build little enclaves of, you know, cultish kind of, you know, segmented, walled-in villages. We're actually supposed to confront something in the world. We are actually to live in the world. But the second thing that I think it does mean is that the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life or the pride of possessions are what the world loves. What does it look like? What does it mean to love the world? We get three things. We get the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life or the pride of possessions. Here's what I think that, very briefly, what I think that all three of those are. The passions, the desires of the flesh are the passions of pleasure. They're sensual. They, they need, they love sex and food and experience. They love the numbness of alcohol. They love the, uh, the, the winsome parties that distract from the reality of life. It's the, it's the things that you can sense. It's the things that your flesh just desires. It's comfort. Well, that's of the world. You're not to love those things. You're certainly not to love those things more than you love the Father. The second is the desires of the eyes. This is uh, potential prosperity, okay? The desires of the eyes. We, all of us, through these one-inch slits, look at the things of the world and we desire the things of the world. We desire the material blessings of the world. We desire the comforts of the world. We desire uh, that house, that thing, that wife. We desire all of these things. And it's just this idea that we could have the potentiality for prosperity in our lives. And it makes us materialistic. It makes us covetous. And what it does really at the end of days is it just hollows us out on the inside. It creates just this ever-expanding vacuum and void for more stuff. You know how I know? know? Because I know. I love those things. I think about those things. My Amazon and internet search history says that there are things that I love in this world. Don't you? We're not to have the desires of the eyes. Those are the things of the world. But lastly, we're not to have the pride of life. This is the pride of possessions, okay? That's what it says, the pride of possessions. But here's what I think it's really getting at. It's not as much talking about uh, the, the actual possessions themselves. It's talking about the pride of it. It's talking about that self-reliance, that self-assurance. I provided for myself. I am self-reliant. I need no God to provide for me. You need not God's providential provision in your life because you have proudly provided for yourself. That's what it means. And that's a thing of this world that is damnable and that steals away from love and affections for a father. These are the worldly desires and loves that make way for all kinds of evil. And you know what the truth is? These are the kinds of things that lead to a Planned Parenthood mindset. We, we started off by talking about uh, abortion as a thing of this world, and you go, show me the math on that. I'll show you the math on that. Here in this set of verses, it says that we are not to desire the things of the world. We're not to desire the passions of the flesh. We're not to desire those things that are passionate and fleshly. What, what, what is the result of every single baby that was ever aborted in this country is passions of the flesh. 
those uh, in sobriety and uh, in non-willingness to be disciplined or fall underneath God's uh, perfect moral standard for how we are to live sexually. And it results in a life, which is good. But it also results in this thing that clashes up against it, these desires that we had, the desires of the eyes, the potentiality for prosperity. Oh no, I'm pregnant. Oh no, my girlfriend is pregnant. This ruins all of the plans that I had for my life. No, it doesn't. It expands the capacity for God's love and his generosity and his provision. It expands the potentiality of just life and life eternal, these glorious little beings that God creates, and they come underneath the desires of the eyes. And finally, the pride of life. I want, I want to be in charge. I want to be in charge of my own destiny. I want to finish college. I want to have that kind of career. I want to have this kind of spouse. I want to have that kind of family. And here's the truth, beloved. If we're being just honest, just to the bone, to the core, this all leads to a Planned Parenthood mindset that allows for us to take life out of a womb, life that was not ours to take. And you might think this morning, Chris, there are people in this room that have had abortions, that have counseled for abortion, that have, that have provided the money for abortions, that, uh, that, that have, have picketed for and alongside people for abortions, that have made room in conversations where it's just like, well, maybe, maybe there's some uh, allowance for this. Maybe this can be righteous. This can be holy. Here's what I want you to know. I'm not called to those things. I'm not. Jesus holds up a standard where he says, thou shalt not murder. And he says, I tell you, everyone who's harbored hate in their heart is a murderer. I stand condemned as a murderer. We all stand condemned as murderers. Yes, I know that that is an unbelievably insensitive and harsh thing. What I want you to know is I couldn't possibly hate this congregation or this community or this city to say anything else. What I'll say right in behind all of this is, is that if we confess our sins, if we have faith in Jesus Christ that he is big enough, that the riches of his glory are high enough, that the depth of his forgiveness is, de <laughs> is deep enough, to save sinners like us, it can cover over anything. And if we confess it, he is faithful. He is just to forgive us our sins. But here's what I want you to know. Don't do the individual juke. What, what about this situation? I'm talking about a national sin. I'm talking about a sin that we all took on. I'm talking about the sin of loving this world. That's what I'm talking about this morning. Do not love the world or the things of the world. Why? Because they steal love away from the Father and they make plenty of way for evil. Do not love the systems and structures of this world that cause sinful oppression, but rather fight Fight against it, conquer it, win against it with the victory that we have already received in Jesus. What do we do now? What do we do now that Roe has been uh, repealed, that it is no longer a thing in our society? What we do is we, we activate. If you've been sleepy on this issue, guess what? There are lots of things that now the church can be the church. It can activate in this moment. We can serve at pregnancy centers. We can build relationships with women who are scared and who need it right now, not later. 
who don't just need your, your uh, money. They need your time. They need a friend. They need relationship. They need a family. They need a network. They need a community. They need Jesus. Man, there is so much that the church can do now. Let us not fall flat on our faces. Let us not get 10, 12, 15, 30 years down the road and the, uh, the, the world be able to point back at the church and go, look at what they didn't do. They say that they love life, but they don't. Look at their actions. I want to be the kind of person. I want to be a pastor in the kind of church that uses this moment to like really stand up and take responsibility that we might adopt. I know that some of you guys have uh, considered adoption. I know that we have foster families in our midst. I know that we will grow as a church that is known for being an adoptive family, just like God is an adoptive father. But I also think that we can just talk about it. If there's some reticence in you and if you're like, I would not have done this this way. Not this week, not now. It's just too soon. Man, I just hope that we're not silent on this. I hope that in your office, in your mom's group, when it comes up, I hope that you can be winsome, not authoritative and gross. I don't want for our church to be known as like this oppressive, ridiculous church that is heavy-handed and hateful. I don't want for us to choose our words unwisely and be unkind. I don't want for us to be the type of church that just casts doubt and blame and just all kinds of nonsense. I want for us to be a grace-filled, loving community. I want for us to be sacrificial like Jesus is sacrificial of his life. I want for us to be that kind of church. I've gone long on this point. Thanks for sticking with me. John says that it is dangerous for us to love the world. But, but he doesn't just say that it's dangerous. He says that it's stupid. Did you see? Did you see where he said that? He said, to love the world is stupid too. He says, do not love the world or the things of the world. You'll miss out on the love of the Father and then at the very end, it says this. It says that the world is passing away with its desires. Guess what? If we love the world, the world is dying. You're loving something that's dead and gone. It's fading away. We actually saw earlier in 1 John, in verse 8, it says that there is this new commandment. And it's true in him, Jesus. And it's true in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is shining. There is something that is going to last for eternity. And guess what it isn't? It's not the world. It's not the desires of this world. It's not what this is talking about. There is a world. There's a new world, a new heaven, a new earth that we will live in forever. But that is not what John is talking about. He's talking about this world and the desires of this world. And those things are dead. They're dying. They're just as good as gone. And if you hitch your wagon to those kinds of things, you're going to die too. That's what John is saying. So he's given us this blessed assurance if we are in Jesus, but he is giving us this grievous warning if we are attached to this world. We need to be in the true shining light. We need to have that thing that is overcoming wickedness and darkness and sin. Why? Because you, you are that person that stands alongside of Jesus you're the one who is showing and shining the true light. You are a faithful and forgiven fighter. And the last promise that we get is the best. The world will die, 
but whoever does the will of the Father abides forever. So if you hear John's words this morning giving you assurance of the faith and forgiveness that you have and it's encouraging you to be a fighter, to be a warrior in this world, against the world for the purposes of the kingdom, what you need to hear next is, is that if you do that, you abide forever. That's the greatest assurance that you can have. Do you want to die with the world or do you want to live with God forever in light? It's Pascal's wager. What do you want to do? You want to die? You want to live? Man, we choose life here at City Church. We want to be faithful, forgiven fighters that abide forever. We've been warned. We've been warned of the woes of this world, but we can live with assurance as faithful, forgiven fighters that are abiding forever. Let's pray for that. God and Father, we hear and stand trembling in front of all of these if-then statements. None of us, not one of us measures up. Father, we do live in darkness. We do love the world. We love its materialism. We love its pleasures. There are times where we try to return to that old, broken down, uh, desperately defunct house, and we realize that it is crumbling. We return to it, and we're reminded that we need to go live in your kingdom. We need to go live in your house. God and Father, I pray that you would help us to be faithful in you as an everlasting Father. Father, I pray that we would have assurance that we are forgiven by your Son who fought for us and who uh, was the propitiation for our sins and who is our advocate even today. And Father, I pray that you would make City Church a place where there is some fight in us, not ugliness, winsomeness. Not uncarefulness, but loving tenderness. Not unkindness, but kindness. But Father, I want for us to be fighters. I know that you do too. Lord, help us not to love this world or the things of this world. We need your help to do that. But Father, I pray that you would give us the assurance, a forever assurance, that if we do your will, we will abide with you forever. We praise you for that truth and ask you for help in believing it in the name of our mighty Savior, Jesus. Amen.